everybody. Uh, welcome to this episode of the Real Talk podcast. Uh, so today we're covering a bunch of feedback over the last few episodes, uh, but we're doing something a little different. So uh, for any of you listeners who've been with us quite a while, you'll know that we usually do an episode or a couple episodes, and then we'll do a bunch of feedback between Tyler and myself. But now we're going to bring on a guest for this episode, partly just because it's such a complex topic and there's a lot of numbers and stats to, to we're trying to put COVID to bed. And we, well, yeah, <laughs> let's let's see what we can do on that. Yeah. Um, but also just to just to shake it up and keep it fresh. And yeah, we hope yeah. to uh, to make I know, the whole goal of this all the time was uh, to make it a, a place for conversation and mm. to inform you and to also inspire you to your own conversations. So, um, yeah, we're hoping to make it sort of a, a spot where we can bring in listeners who want to have a say on feedback episodes and, and kind of do a rotating cast of guests. Yeah. Instead of us just jabbering, maybe we'll have a few returning guests, but we'll we were throwing the idea around of having a listener or two on to uh, to chat about different viewpoints on the episode that we just did. So, or episode or two, yep. depending on how frequent we do it. But exactly. hopefully we can, uh, you know, bring maybe, you know, if you're interested, you can, you know, write us on an email and we can bring uh, a listener on and you can challenge us. Yeah. People exactly. like to do that in an email. Maybe they'll like to do it live. Yeah. So add, <laughs> add that to your feedback now, folks. If you want to come on the show, let us know. Let us know why we should pick you to come on the show. Yeah, not that it's some big honor, but uh, it'd be good to have you. It doesn't pay either. No, no, no. We'll give you a high five. So anyways, <laughs> uh, so we have uh, a special guest on today. But before I intro him, uh, let's just hit a few highlights on some of the other um, feedback we got on previous episodes with uh, the one we did with Brent Vanderwood on what is money. And also with Sam say on critical race theory. So, uh, Ty, maybe what what are you hearing from people on uh, that episode we did with Brent? Yeah, that was. Uh, I think it was really well received. We um, got a bit of pushback on the fact that he doesn't uh, isn't an accountant or a financial yeah, advisor. That's true. That's true. <laughs> but uh, no, he's really well researched and and yeah, I mean, what money I say bad about my brother, right? Oh, fair enough. <laughs> I, I felt people appreciated it. It opened yeah. their eyes. It was a perspective think, they hadn't heard. I think we we pushed Bitcoin a little too much, or or we hadn't intended to talk about Bitcoin as like you know the solution to the world, but also uh, that's kind of the way it went. Um, but I think a good background in money got people thinking. So that's uh, yeah, hopefully something that we maybe develop in another episode. But I think uh, in general, it was just kind of informative for people. Yeah. And if, again, if people have ideas for future guests to have on that would have different perspective on on what is money and mm-hmm. how to be a responsible steward with the with the gifts God's given us, then we're totally open to it. And then the other one was Sam Say. Um, didn't get a ton of feedback on that one, but uh, I think it was, again, just kind of generally people appreciated the, uh, the talk on critical race theory. Uh, you see it a lot. I'm sure our guests will know this in the education system as well. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, it's uh, it's important to talk yeah, about. We, yeah, we've been talking about... Um, bill 67 afterward with uh, the Ontario government. And I'm sure some of our listeners have heard, you know, guys like Jordan Peterson talking about it and mm. um, yep. Uh, Rex Murphy was going on about it too. And uh, that's, uh, you know, bill laden with this stuff. So um, that was definitely one of the things that came about since that episode that was like, oh, okay, now well, this is probably why we should all care. <laughs> so if people are wondering about that, um, I would, yeah recommend going back and listening to that because it was uh informative from yeah from a different perspective for sure yep sam sam's got a great way of talking about that stuff and Mm -hmm. he's uh he's on the ball there so it was it was a pleasure to speak with him okay well i've been teasing this long enough um sorry (laughs) our guest for today is a very patient man we've been waiting throughout all of our blabbering here 
uh, is Ed Bosfeld. He is a professor, make sure I get this correct, adjunct lecturer in law and public policy at Redeemer. And he's got a few other things on the go. So maybe I'll throw it over to Ed to introduce himself and then we'll get into uh, some of the feedback. Yeah, thanks. And thanks for having me. Really, uh, really exciting to be here. And, uh, you know, I'm surprised people aren't tired of talking about COVID yet, but uh, you know, maybe <laughs> maybe after tonight. So, yeah. Uh, so for a few years, I've been been teaching public policy at Redeemer to, uh, uh, to third and fourth year students mostly. And um, so throughout the last couple of years, I mean, the pandemic has really been a, you know, real life exercise in public policy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I know my students have, have paid a lot of attention to that, you know, how are policies being made and how are they being evaluated and what's the evidence behind them and so on. So uh, I've spent much of the last two years looking at the data and looking at the way policy is being made and how it's being evaluated and so on. And uh, I'm always happy to uh, to talk about it. Especially yeah. because my, you know, my family really doesn't want to hear about it anymore. So <laughs> it's always good when I can get out of the house and talk to somebody else about it's it. Like, yeah, we're just trying to find people to listen to us too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're in the same boat. <laughs> nah, that's good. So yeah, obviously, uh, it was a uh, a big episode. A lot of you guys listened to it, and um, and yeah, once again, just thanks to Sam and Will for coming on and mm. engaging. That was, uh, yeah, that was very nice of them to do. Obviously, they they took a risk doing that with their jobs, and that was uh, that was much appreciated. So even if, uh, you know, there is uh, frustration with some of their points for sure and uh, disagreements, uh, it's something that it's it's good that we can have an open discussion and talk about it first and foremost. So mm-hmm. but anyways, we'll kind of run through all the key concerns. I kind of compiled them all into this nice little Google Doc. And then actually Sam took the time to respond to, uh, to quite a number of these points, too, which, again, is is appreciated. And so we're kind of going to work through them one by one. And then I'll uh, I'll kind of I guess I'll, I'll provide the criticism. And, um, and maybe give Sam's point of view and then we'll f- flip it over to Ed and then he can kind of respond and cause he's been yeah in the thick of it on all the stats and, and whatnot. So mm-hmm. should be interesting. And then yeah. Interject. If you got any questions there, I got a quick question. What made you interested in all the stats? First of all, like, well, just, are you, you're teaching public policy, but is there like, did you have like a specific interest in, in COVID and in, you know, specifically, I guess. Well, I, I mean, I, I, I like numbers. I like stats. I like, you know, risk analysis and, and things like that. And, uh, but I'm really interested in public policy, you know, how, how is public policy formed? And if you think about it, when we talk about COVID, most of what we're talking about is public policy, right? right. So the government did this or didn't do this or imposed masks or closed schools or these are all public policy decisions. And mm. you know, generally, if you talk to people about public policy, their, you know, their eyes start to roll. It's kind of boring, but all of a sudden public policy is something that everybody talks about, yeah. you know, and, uh, uh, you know, so all of a sudden there's this, there's this situation, this real life situation where public policy is really affecting everybody and people have a lot of questions about it. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, why did we do this and did this make sense? And, you know, and governments are struggling to deal with a new situation and create public policy where maybe there's not enough information. Um, you know, so the whole public policy process of how a policy is designed and implemented and evaluated and measured all of a sudden that has a whole lot of really, you know, practical impact on people's lives. I mean, it always did, yeah. uh, but with COVID people actually start to start to start notice to it. So, bit, yeah. and, and one of the things I found was that it was difficult to find good information, right? So the, you know, the, you know, pandemic discussions became polarized pretty quickly, right? Mm-hmm. You're on one side or you're on the other side. Yep. And, uh, you know, I really think it's important to try to go back to the data and the evidence and, you know, even where it's not always as clear as it could be mm-hmm. to look at it and say, you know, hey, look, this, this is fact uh, as far as we can determine it right now and maybe take some of the, uh, you know, polarization out of it and, mm-hmm. and say, well, you know, maybe we can agree on some 
some some key facts or some key data or uh, you know at least talk about making policies based on more on evidence and less on politics maybe right mm. okay. that would be the goal yeah all yeah. right, let's let's roll through it. All right, we'll get into happens. it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, uh, feedback point number one. So there was concern with changing and in incorrect modeling that undergirded government policies. Um, so Sam responded to this saying, modeling has been wrong in overestimating the impacts of COVID, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, but it has also been wrong in underestimating. Uh, if you look at the science-stable projections, that's from the Ontario government, for uh, the current wave, they predicted lower hospitalizations that have actually been occurring. Uh, and the alternative to not fantastic data is pretty much no data. So, um, yeah, it's still necessary to to use the data that you have and to make decisions from that. So, um, yeah, Ed, Ed's been through all this stuff. Uh, what were your thoughts on that, Ed? Yeah, I mean, mo modeling has been, uh, you know, I think a really sore point for a lot of people, right? And we've we've all heard and possibly sometimes joked about the Ontario Science Table models that you know had had just massive numbers, and you know we still hear massive numbers sometimes. And yeah. Are there models that are too conservative? Maybe. Generally, though, that hasn't been the issue throughout the pandemic, or maybe we just don't hear about those. And if we go right back to the very start of the pandemic, there was modeling done out of the UK that really shaped a lot of countries' response. And it was really, really scary, right? Millions and millions and millions of people were going to die. And, um, you know, and, and a lot of government response was based on that. And to be fair, I mean, this was a new virus and this was a new situation. Nobody really knew what to do. So, Maybe you're going to go with the best information that you have, and that's understandable, and you prepare for the worst. I mean, I remember, you know, in, in you know, March, April of 2020, you know, Canada, federal government saying, you know, we've ordered 40,000 ventilators, right? Because we are going to, we're going to run out of ventilators, right? We're going to have to make ventilators out of, vac you know, vacuum cleaners. And, you know, we're, mm -hmm. you know, so this, this was what we all understood at that, at that time. Well, if you look, you know, Ontario right now has got, I think, 82 people on ventilators and across Canada, you know, maybe there's maybe there's there's a couple hundred. Right. So 40,000 ventilators. I mean, I don't know where they are. Um, you know, maybe they can be some, stored for some the future warehouse, Mrs. or, you know, turn, turn, <laughs> turn back into vacuum cleaners or whatever. But, yeah. but at, you know, at, at that time, that was that was the only information that, that we had. So I, I think, you know, I think we have to cut decision makers some slack for saying, you know, early on, there's just so much that we didn't know. But as, as we got into the pandemic, you know, we, we got a year in, I mean, we're, we're in two years now, you know, I think there, there's a lot more information. And I think, um, you know, maybe there's a little bit of less ex of, of an excuse for, for bad modeling. And, um, you know, I, I think a few things have happened with, with the modeling that have, have you know, really led to problems. And one is the modeling often assumes that everything the virus does is controlled by human beings. Right. So, uh, you know, and that's just not been true for any virus or really any any wild thing in in nature or in creation. But, um, you know, the idea that, OK, the virus will do this unless we do this. All right. And that's that's often been the foundation for government policy. Right. Well, according to this model, if we don't do something now, this is this is what's going to happen. And it doesn't uh, those models often don't acknowledge the reality that the virus does stuff on its own that we don't always understand. Um, so I spend a lot of time looking, for example, at cases rising and falling in, in different countries, right? And there are certain patterns, there's certain seasonal patterns. Sometimes they go, you know, there, there may be geographic patterns, you know, relating to climate. There's a lot that we just, we just don't actually know. But the models often just assume it's like pushing buttons, right? And if we push this button, then the cases are going to go down. And if we push this button or fail to push this button, cases are going to go up. And the problem with that is, I mean, first of all, it's just not it's not realistic. It's not the way it works. But it also under, starts to undermine trust in 
in modeling, right? So you said this was going to happen. You said we were going to have, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, you know, in hospital or, or whatever else. And when that doesn't happen, people start to get uh, a little, a little bit suspicious. You know, so that's, I mean, that's, that's been an issue with, with the modeling and, you know, I, I still don't see it changing each time a new model comes out, you know, I read it and it's still like everything is dependent on, on human beings. And mm. I, I think it's a little bit arrogant that we can just change the course of something like this. I mean, I don't think we'd say that with a, you know, with a snowstorm or a hurricane or, or whatever else, you know, and that's not to say we can't do things to, to mitigate a virus and yeah. a pandemic. I mean, you know, mm. certainly we can, but just the idea that we can, we can just control it and that everything, uh, you know, happens or doesn't happen because of what we did, you know, cases go up and especially early in the pandemic, right? Politicians would be, well, you know, those young people out there doing this or, you know, people yeah, yeah. aren't doing this or people mm -hmm. aren't, aren't doing this. And then cases will go down or be, oh, people did the right thing and, and so on. And, um, you know, I think thankfully, you know, provincially we're getting away from that a little bit now. Uh, you know, so, you know, Dr. Moore yesterday was like, no, we're not, we're not imposing new measures. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we think we're going to be, we're going to be okay. So, so I think that's, you know, there have been real issues with the modeling. I think the other thing I'd say about modeling is that it's often been used kind of as a, as a stick. Mm. Um, so rather than providing information, which is what I think the model <laughs> should be for, it's been like, you know, we're, we're going to use this to try to change people's behavior. So, you know, to talk about some of the Ontario models, for example, the, you know, there's often be a, you know, best case scenario or medium scenario and a worst case scenario. And what we would hear about, and this would be from politicians and public health officials and, and media, was always the worst case scenario, right? We could mm -hmm. see up to 10,000 people in ICU or we could see this. Or we could see, but even in the model, that wasn't exactly what, you know, they're saying if everything goes goes wrong, this is where, where it's going to be. Mm -hmm. But that was often used to try to motivate people to behave in a certain way. And I think, again, that that led to a to a, a loss of trust and people saying, you know, OK, well, you keep coming with these really, really scary models and, you know, they never come true. And mm -hmm. so next time you do it, I think you're just you're just trying to scare me. So one of the themes for me during the pandemic has been sort of this loss of trust in institutions, in politicians, in public health, in media, in, in medicine, which is, I think, a really serious problem going forward. And I think the modeling has has contributed to mm -hmm. that. I'm not saying we shouldn't do modeling. I mean, yeah. uh, I think it's important, but we have to recognize the limitations and also just recognize it's it's not all about us, even if we think yeah. it is. You have to look at the incentives too for for those who do like who make the modeling and then for the politicians who rely mm -hmm. upon the modeling. Because I noticed, like, I read through that science deal thing that that Sam linked there, and um, for example, like on their mass, their slide about mass use, they they cite a study, and then it had like they had called fifteen hundred people or something like that then only 500 had actually participated. And on using that the 500 person sample size, they justified mass use uh, all across the province in all these different situations. Hmm. And I think, yeah, if you're someone who, if you're responsible for making those models and you're in a situation where you have a new disease, you're not sure how it's gonna react, you're gonna tend to, uh, to err toward the side of, well, bigger numbers just in case. And the politicians are gonna do the exact same thing because. Hmm. No one wants the consequences for playing it, you know, for, for loosening or restrictions and then seeing what happens. Yeah. How much did the modeling take in consideration, um, like personal responsibility? Like you're saying there was a best case, mid, middle case and like a worst case scenario. Was the worst case scenario like everyone disregards what we're saying and goes out clubbing? Like because there's there's kind of a feeling that I get that it's the modeling wasn't. Wasn't you know, taking in consideration that I also have concern, concerns the same as they do. And I'm also protecting my 
you know, group of friends and family. And so was the modeling, did the modeling ever like show the impact of what that could or could not, you know, help or like, yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's a great question. Cause that, that is, you know, that is something that the models have really been criticized for, you know, including by, by academics and, and so on. And that is, um, people modify their own behavior on their own without the mm-hmm. government always telling them to as well. Right. So, so in the models often rely on the government does this the government does this, or the government does this. I mean, there'll be predictions of different scenarios, right? So if people don't reduce their mobility, uh, you know, we're going to be in the worst case scenario, right? So mobility being one of the measures of, of how, how people act. But, mm-hmm. but one of the things that's been pointed out is that people make their own choices, even, you know, outside of government regulation. So you know, if you look at Ontario right now, masks are not required in public. You can go to many settings and I would say there's 80% of people are masked, right? Yeah. And that's fine. They're not required to, they, they are choosing to. Modeling has a really hard time, certainly has had a hard time in picking up that kind of behavior. Right. So if cases are really, really increasing, for example, some people might just stay home who would have otherwise gone out. They might not visit a relative. They might be more inclined to stay home if they've got a runny nose, right? So that that sort of thing is it's it's quite powerful actually because you know mm-hmm. people are people are smart. People often make make good choices. But certainly, people will make choices for you know for self preservation. Mm-hmm. And the models really struggle to you know to build that in, right? So if we are going to have an increase in cases and people are going to hear about hospitalizations, are they going to voluntarily uh, you know modify their behavior? I mean, I'm I'm fascinated. For mm-hmm. example, if we could compare Quebec and Ontario right now, so Quebec with with some mask mandates still in place, right? And a much higher level of hospitalizations and, mm-hmm. and um, you know, quite possibly cases, at least, at least known cases. You know, I, I wonder how many more people in Quebec are actually wearing masks, right? So, so in Ontario, right. it may well be that in some parts of Ontario, 80% of people are masked, mm-hmm. you know, um, even though it's not required. Um, what's happening in Quebec right now? Maybe they're 80% masked or maybe they're 75% masked. So, right. so the idea that everything happens through, you know, through government regulation and restriction, I, I think is, is a flaw in, in the models as well. People, right. um, you know, people choose their own behaviors and it goes both ways. People may choose to engage in behaviors that reduce their risk on their own, but people might also choose to ignore government, you know, re- restrictions on masking or, or whatever else. So, so the model based on just, you know, we're, we're going to impose this policy or we're going to do this, that, that can lead to, um, it can lead to, to flawed modeling as well. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. It seems like it's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy now that they, they did the heavy handed thing and people are now educated. And it seems like as we move into the fall, perhaps people are going to be doing this themselves. And you're not going to see this surge in numbers, but it's because people are taking that personal responsibility, not because what we did was, you know, what we should have been doing. Like we should maybe have just said, well, the high risk people, maybe they're, they're doing all that already. So it's, uh, yeah, so, some, some of it is, I think is about culture change, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, North American culture, for example, um, you know, I haven't missed a day of work for 30 days or for 30 years, that kind of thing. Right. What yeah. does that mean? It probably means you went to work sick. Yeah. Right. And got other yeah. people sick and so on. But but we treat that as a as a really good thing. Right. Well, you're a you know, you're a great employee, um, you know, so, uh, you know, your kids feel a little bit sick in the morning. Well, you know, school's important. Suck it up. Go, yeah. go to school yeah. uh, and, and so on. So so some of those things, if, if those change, that that will actually make a significant difference for COVID and for, for other diseases as well. If we mm. can change a culture to hey, I'm not feeling well, I'm actually going to make sure I'm, I'm just not going to be near people till I'm feeling better. Not a real big thing, not a thing I think government can regulate very well. Yeah. But if that sort of cultural change happens, that may be more powerful than, you know, for example, government restrictions or 
you know, filling out endless screening forms, right? I mean, mm-hmm. how often have you, you know, been in line where where they're requiring screening and they're asking, you know, have you been this, this, this? How often have you heard somebody say, oh, yeah, actually, now that you, now that you mention it, I actually, I, I do have a, a really bad cough and cold. I should, I'll turn around and go home right now. <laughs> I mean, it, it, yeah. we, we go through some of these almost, you know, ritual, um, it feels almost well, super superstitious to me. Well, because yeah. it's a 12-year-old asking you the questions. <laughs> yeah, that, that's right. So, you know, so, so some, some of those things would be much better off if, you know, we, we can sort of change our, our perspective on, hmm. um, you know, on, on disease and, and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right. Uh, let's get into, uh, vaccines, vaccine mandates. Uh, that was a, a big, big chunk of the feedback too. So uh, point number two here, uh, concern with vaccine being pushed for all ages, despite known and unknown side effects and different risk levels. So Sam's response to that was, uh, I would argue that the data is very clear. The risk is still greater from getting COVID than from vaccination. And that is true even for, quote, low risk people, uh, such as young people. However, uh, he also notes that the promotion is not completely indiscriminate as Moderna and AstraZeneca are not preferred for young men uh, due to higher rates of myocarditis, which speaks to the fact that side effects are to be taken seriously. So that was Sam's response. Um, yeah, I'll throw it over to you, Ed, for what do you think about that? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I, I think there's a number of really big mistakes we've made through the pandemic, and I'm, I'm not saying that they could have been avoided. I mean, this is a, this is a new thing and we're trying to figure out as, as we go. But the one, one of the really big mistakes, I think, that has, has often been made right from the beginning is, is that we ignored the age stratification of risk. So, so there's not enough attention paid to who is at risk and, and why. And in fact, sometimes the, the messaging has been the opposite. So, you know, there'd be, um, you know, local uh, medical officers of health, you know, saying the virus does not discriminate. You know, we are all, everybody's equally at risk. The virus does not discriminate. And it's simply not true, yeah. mm-hmm. right? I mean, that is simply not based on evidence, data, and, and so on. And, and the reason I think that we're hearing that messaging is they don't want some people to just relax and go out and yeah. breathe moistly or, or, or whatever, <laughs> right? Because, Speak moistly too much. Right? So, so but, but, but it's, it's, it's simply, you know, from my point of view, it's not, it's not even really honest messaging mm-hmm. because we no. know that the risks for certain people are, are massive. Right. And I think those are actually underplayed sometimes. I mean, if we look at COVID deaths in, in Canada and in people 80 plus, I mean, mm-hmm. if, if somebody in that age group gets COVID, I mean, their risk of dying is, is really, really, really high. All right. And, and sometimes I actually think that when we just talk about everybody being at risk, we actually minimize the risk to some people who are at, at, at really high risk. And then at the other end, I mean, the, the risk, for example, to children is very, very, very low. And one of the things that's just been remarkable. I think it's even worse in the States than here is just how we have obsessed on, on the risk to children, even though the evidence and the data is just so clear. So, you know, mm-hmm. Dr. Moore had a, you know, at a press conference yesterday and this is a question he was asked by the media, you know, Oh, there's all these kids going into to ERs and whatever else, you know, when are you going to bring masking back to schools? And Dr. Moore said, you know, we've got 2.75 million children in Ontario and there's currently two of them in ICU related to COVID, two out of 2.75 million. Mm-hmm. All right. So, and I mean, obviously you wouldn't want to see anybody in ICU, sure. um, you know, with, with COVID, yeah. but still that that's pretty astounding, right? Yeah. Because if you would compare that risk to things like playground accidents or, or car accidents or anything, drownings or, or, or whatever else, right. Um, they're, they're, um, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're not, they're not even comparable. So, 
So, so you know, this this failure to, I think, adequately, you know, talk about the the age stratification of risk, I think, it's been really, really a, a problem, and that's that's tied into to vaccination as well, because if you, uh, you know, and, and again, these 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 are just, this is just data. If if you take a uh, you know an unvaccinated twenty year old, this person is at much less risk of COVID than a vaccinated eighty year old. I mean that's mm-hmm. just that's that's just statistics, yeah. right? Yeah. And that's not to say maybe the twenty year old should get vaccinated. I mean I, I I believe that vaccination is a medical decision that should involve a risk benefit analysis, and you have to say what are what are my risks and and what is the benefit. And I think that's true for for any age group. And I think for some age groups, uh, particularly the elderly, I think that that risk benefit. Uh, balance is really, really tilted toward vaccination, but it gets much trickier when you get to younger people, and particularly when you get to kids. This is not something that you know. I'm just, I'm just making up. I mean, there's a lot of countries that have said, you know, if you read mm. uh, the UK's, um, you know, Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunization, they make recommendations. You know, they've yeah. said this is such a fine balance for kids. You know, yeah. very, very low risk of COVID and a very low risk vaccine. So you got one one really low risk, and you're going to mitigate it with this other low risk, which has some unknowns to it. They both may have some unknowns to it, and you end up kind of in this. Well, it's it's almost a tie game, right? So you know, is 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 this really necessary? So so one of the things that I've I think I've been disappointed in is you know I'm not sure we've adequately realized that you know if if we could if we could vaccinate a thousand more 80 year olds the impact of that is going to be greater in terms of preserving lives protecting the healthcare system than maybe vaccinating 100,000 children and i, I think mm. that's that's often yeah. been been lost and i i think that's that's a really serious problem because um you know we may not be getting enough to the people that are are at risk and i know there's there's certainly efforts to be made but you know, we say some. You know, we've we've vaccinated. You know, ninety eight percent of 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 seniors or ninety nine percent of seniors. There still are fairly significant numbers that are not vaccinated, and you know the the rate of serious illness and death in in those people is is very very high. So yeah, so I, I wish there was a more um, a, an approach that was more um, open about about the risk. And this this is also mm-hmm. true with comorbidities, right? So we we know now. We didn't know two years ago, but we know now. That certain conditions make people at much much greater risk of COVID. Well, when did we know that? Like a year ago? Yeah, I mean it's 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 a it's an ongoing thing, right? right. I mean, it, and and it actually it used to be, you know, for a while they thought asthma was a was a risk factor, and then it turned out it wasn't, right? So you get more data, and and that's that's fine. That's going to happen. But but there's certain things that that we know, right? So you know, obesity, high blood pressure, and so on. So mm-hmm. so you you think that we'd be talking a lot about, hey, if you have these characteristics, you're older. Uh, you know, maybe your 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 weight is more than it should be. You've got high blood pressure. You're in this super high risk category, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but instead, again, we've tended to say everybody's at risk. Everybody should get vaccinated. And I, I just I I don't think that's been a a a wise approach. So to come come back to the question of you know mm-hmm. talking about vaccines for all age groups. I think we should be talking about what's your risk, what's your benefit, and, and what makes sense in your situation. Maybe this isn't in your wheelhouse, but do you feel like that um, disparity was more of a cultural or political move? Like we don't want to, you know, fat shame somebody or we don't want to, you know, we don't want to put the burden of this pandemic onto the elderly. Like or or do you feel like the modeling was actually wrong or they or they weren't looking at it at it right from a different, you know, a different angle? Yeah, I mean, that's 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 a really good question. You know. A few provinces, like Alberta, will actually list comorbidities on on their website. 
Mm. Right. So you can actually see and what you'll see is people who die um, of COVID or with COVID often have, you know, two or three comorbidities. And they're often, mm. you know, can't might be cancer, dementia, you know, high blood pressure and so on. Yeah. I find that really helpful information. And I think it should be helpful information to the general public in, mm. in assessing their own risk. So I'm not sure that 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 information has been withheld in, in, in other areas or not, maybe not made very public because of of sort of concern about shaming. I, I think my sense is it's well, if, if, if we say these people are at risk, then everybody else is going to think that they're not at risk and they're going to, you know, carry on. Like I said, uh, if you insert any nuance into it. Then yeah. People check yeah. Out. And it's, it's, it's the same as saying, you know, older people are at risk or whatever else. Well, then younger people are just going to go out and, uh, and, and, and party and so on. So, but I, I think that's, that's been disappointing. It's really interesting. You know, I was, I was, um, at the hospital a couple of weeks ago, I actually noticed a screensaver at the hospital and it was, it was like, it was exactly what I was, what I thought, I thought it was great. It said, you are at higher risk if, and then it had these different, you know, it's like a slideshow, right? Yep. If you are over 50 and have one of these conditions, or if you are, um, you know, this particular racial group or ethnic group, I had all this really specific, clear information about, about risk. And I thought that's really, really good. I mean, that's the sort of thing we should be talking about and, and we, we haven't adequately talked about. And no, I mean, we, we knew early on that the elderly would be affected. I mean, one of the real disasters in Ontario was the fact that there was carnage among our elderly early, early in the pandemic. I mean, mm-hmm. many, many of Ontario's deaths were among elderly people in long-term care facilities yeah. early on. And, you know, there's going to be, you know, inquiries and we're going to talk about that and, and look into it. But mm-hmm. if you would actually take away those deaths, Ontario's death rate would actually be significantly lower. I mean, more than, more than 60% of, of COVID deaths in Ontario are people 80, uh, 80 and yeah. above. And if you, if you increase that to, people 60 and above, it's 93% of, of, of Ontario's COVID deaths. Hmm. So why don't, why don't we talk about that more? Well, I, you know, some of it is, I think just not wanting people in general to say, Oh, I'm not at risk. So I'm going to carry on. And I think there's, there's been a real obsession with children's safety as well. And, uh, you know, this is a, this is a whole other issue, but I think this is probably the issue that, you know, has, has, you know, led you guys when you were kids to having playgrounds where everything was one foot off the ground and made of rubber and you couldn't possibly hurt yourself. Yeah, 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 you know, a bit of, bit of, a bit of safety, safetyism. Um, but, but there's also, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, I, I think there's been some fear mongering on, you know, social media experts and so on. I mean, we, we saw this in, in January where, you know, a widely followed, you know, Twitter expert in Ontario said, you know, there's going to be, going to be thousands of kids uh, in in hospital and ICU by the end of January be- because of the the Omicron variant, right? Right. And he said it. I mean, he's an expert. I'm not a doctor, and I certainly don't have the qualifications of this. I said, I I just can't see that happening. Yeah. And by the by the end of of the month when this was supposed to happen, I mean the numbers were were very low, and they remain very low, thankfully. But yeah. there's so there's there's been also just a lot of um, really sensational kind yeah. of um, you know there's there's been incidents where public officials have announced the death of you know very sad to announce the death of a 14 year old because of COVID. And there've been situations where that family came forward and said, Hey, he had cancer, you know, just the fact that he had COVID really didn't have, have a lot to do with his, his death. But again, mm-hmm. I, I think it's been a way to try to get people to, to take it seriously, to, to recognize that every, everybody's at risk. But I, I don't, I don't think that's been a, a, a great way of providing information. It's been more a way of trying to, uh, you know, get people yeah. to act a certain way. It's like a population wide, um, move I, and I think sam and will kind of recognize that when we talked to them that, that was a it was just a policy that was was put out there for everybody trying to get the whole masses to try to yeah. shift their behavior but it's, <clears throat> it's assuming that you're not taking personal responsibility right it's like if well if we don't if we tell these teenagers they're not at risk they're all going to go party and then they're going to go see grandma well it's like 
or maybe they love their grandma, right? And then no one ever said stuff like that. It was like, maybe they'll go party, but maybe they will also be responsible when they are visiting someone of high risk. If you inform them who is high risk, perhaps they will know when they're going to visit grandma. She's at higher risk than you are. So if you're not feeling at risk, well, you should still believe that she's at risk and not and not believe that you're on the same kind of risk level. Because if they don't think they're ever going to be affected by it, then they might think that she's not going to be affected by it. So it's just this, it's a very, it's a very interesting way of, of trying to get a population to do what, what, you know, is quote unquote right in, in a situation. Yeah. So, so I, I think some of that is, is actually about trust and you can think about trust sort of in a, in a policy context from different directions. So there's, there's upward trust that would be made the trust we might have of our, of our leaders, right? There's, there's downward trust, the trust they would have of us. Right. And then there could be lateral trust, trust that we might have of each other institutions and so on. Mm. And one of the things that I felt, you know, uh, really after about the first month or six weeks, first month or six weeks of the pandemic, we were all in this together. We were flattening the curve. Right. It was a scary thing that, you know, who you know, I remember what was happening in northern Italy. Right. There were, you know, army trucks carrying out coffins and there was no room in the world. It was a really, really scary time. Mm. And, um, you know, at, at that time, I think there was a fair bit of trust. And, and then what started to happen was. First of all, I think there was a loss of downward trust. So there was a, a loss of trust in or a lack of trust among you know, politicians, public health, that people would do the right thing. You know, you remember the mm. premier talking about those those yahoos, those kids yeah. who ride at car meets and, and yeah, and a couple right? pops after a game of golf and these, <laughs> yes, these freaking guys. Yeah. Yes, yeah. that's right, that's right. The, yeah. I've, I've forgotten about the uh, giggly pops. Yeah. The, the, yeah. The, the, the pops. So, um, <laughs> but 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 it was, it was it was a lack of trust that you know, like you said, people mm. would actually on their own do do the right thing. And I, mm. I, I think actually governments have realized that now and they've realized, well, we can't just keep regulating this forever. This just doesn't work very well. People get sick of it. People get angry. People stop doing it. So now I think we've actually started to see a shift. And we've, we've you know, we've heard this from federal public health officials, from provincial public health officials saying, you know, people make need to make their own individual risk, risk assessment. Dr. Uh, uh, Fauci in, in the U.S. actually said mm. this just the other day, yeah. you know, people need to start making their own individual risk assessments. Well, you know, I, I'm happy. I'm happy to hear that. But so gaslighty after two <laughs> you years. Said that two years ago. <laughs> but like, but yeah, you know, uh, two, two years ago that would have been good. Give people more information. Yeah. Uh, help them to you know, the, the desire for self preservation is pretty strong. You know, uh, yeah. it's, it's not always perfect, but but you know, you give people good information, and many of them will will make good decisions. And it's not going to be perfect, but really, yeah. government regulating it isn't perfect either. In fact, some people will do the opposite. Because mm. the government told them, you know, to, to do this. So that lack of what I sense is a lack of downward trust was part of that policy making. And that resulted, I think, in a lack of, of upward trust by, you know, lack of trust among people in policymakers. And, and I think that's that's going to be a long lasting effect of this pandemic. And the response to the pandemic is this this loss of trust in certain institutions and in in government and public health. And I think that's really problematic because that's going to spill over into routine childhood vaccines, for example, right? Yeah. Where, uh, you know, there were already in some some areas and some, you know, demographic groups, those vaccines were declining against things like, you know, measles and so on. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the, the trust damage that's happened over the last two years is going to have longer term public health effects. And we're not going to know about those for, for years, but, mm. but I think they're going to be there. Yeah. yeah. And um, seeing that, seeing the, the, our leaders shift is, yeah, like you said, it's gaslighting, but it's kind of like, it also, it's kind of an accusation. It's like you, it's like Fauci saying to you, like you weren't doing your own risk assessment already. And people, I don't think people take that very well because 
Yeah, they they said it two years ago, and then nor you know, should they. We we thought, yeah, we thought this two years ago, and and we all have been trying to be responsible. So in a, in our own context, so it's like now you're saying we need to make our own risk assessments. Not very helpful comment. Well, <laughs> no, and, and it, it it comes after too. And I mean, if you you can you can see this on social media a lot, but there's a lot of blaming of people for getting COVID, yeah. right? So you got COVID. You're probably yeah. some reckless fool who was out, you know, breathing somebody else's air. Like it's. Yeah. Right. So, so, and, and, and we, we heard that a lot and that actually was causing people to be afraid to go to hospital when they were sick with COVID because they thought, you know, that, that they were going to be blamed. And, and there's still, I'll see this on social media where people are still embarrassed that they got COVID I, and that they swear, I swear I did everything right. And I still got COVID. Well, you know, it's this highly contagious disease that travels in tiny, yeah. tiny particles, long distances through the air. I mean, you really, there are things you can do to improve your chances, but man, you know, at some point everybody's going to get it. but. But, you know, we unfortunately created an environment where it was this moral failing yeah. if you if you got COVID. And, you know, that that's made things even more difficult. Well, so we there's were, a lot of yeah. backtracking that I think has to happen. A lot of, you know, where politicians and public health are saying, OK, you know, we we did the best we could maybe at the time. But we got to realize now we've maybe done some things that we need to try mm -hmm. to turn around. Like Will and Sam talked about the blunt tool that was used in kind of this, you know, uh, approach that was uniform across all age groups. And I think, yeah, as you say, that's it's definitely going to backfire long term with the public trust laws. Yeah, but just trusting each other, like you, you would go to a, say a wedding or even even in church, if you had like you know there was a there was a little smaller outbreak in your church, people are looking around for who started it. Right. It's like who's the super spreader, yeah. right? Like it must have been a person without a mask. Like that's not helpful, you know, to have within your community, right? Yeah, that doesn't like that doesn't grow the body of Christ or. Yeah. Per, even, like improve fellowship or anything right? yeah like anything but on, on this still back to the vaccines though i guess with this like uh uniform approach across all age groups um in this science table uh thing that sam linked like i read through that and they they constantly hit yes vaccines for everybody all the time like get the full series which is currently two in kids three in adults four in long-term care residents that makes sense given you know the varying varying risk levels but do you think, um, especially the Ontario government, did they take a vaccine cures all sort of approach? And have we overlooked other treatment methods that might be preferable based on your risk? Uh, like, I mean, I'm no expert, but like monoclonal antibodies or anything in that range. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, if I try to go back a year, you know, it's been, it's been a long year, but a year ago, you know, we had the vaccines, the initial trials of the vaccines were really promising, right? Really high rate of effectiveness. You know, if, be careful what effectiveness means. In this case, it was against severe disease. And that's, I mean, that's, that's another, it's another issue to talk about, but it looked really promising. And I, I was, I was pretty optimistic. I was like, wow, you know, we are going to get 70% of people vaccinated, which would be a great number. And we're going to go back to normal. I remember, mm -hmm. right. People are being told, get vaccinated and get back to that's normal. That's what everybody said. You know, our kids, when, when vaccines were approved for kids, Hey, kids get vaccinated, get back to normal. And, you know, kids are going to hold that against us for a long, long time. Cause it was not true. Um, and, you know, maybe we didn't know it wasn't going to be true, but, but, you know, you remember Ontario, I think you talked about it, uh, you know, with, with Sam and Will, right. You know, once we hit 70%, we'll reopen, or once we hit 80%, we'll reopen. Once we hit 90%, we'll reopen. Mm. And Ontario is currently, I mean, we're eight, ages, um, 12 plus we're over, over 90% vaccinated. I mean, one of the highest vaccination rates in the world. Um, but, but it hasn't seemed to help us in terms of, of preventing, preventing lockdowns and so on. I think we I think we put too much hope in the vaccines initially. I, I did. I, I was pretty sure that by last September we'd have decent vaccination rates, we'd see herd immunity, we'd get back to normal. 
And, and really where, where that went off the rails is when we found out the vaccines didn't really prevent transmission Leaky. and infection. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and we probably should have known that, but it, it yeah. initially, initially they actually seemed to be doing okay at that. And then really it was, you know, probably around July of last year, US CDC, there was this big outbreak yeah. uh, among vaccinated people. And they're yeah. like, whoa, wait a minute, what's yeah. going on? And it was kind of downhill from there. And I was already noticing. In Israel, it started, right? Israel is having issues. And I was noticing the UK has really, really good data that they put out. And I was already noticing different age groups, the case rates were getting higher and higher in the vaccinated than in the, than the unvaccinated. I'm like, well, if vaccination is preventing transmission, you know, this, how can this be? And, and so, you know, I've been talking about that for a while and mm-hmm. it's slowly become more and more clear to the point now that, you know, there's, there's no serious, um, you know, scientist or, or, or expert who's going to say, you know, vaccines do a great job of preventing transmission. They may prevent it for a, a certain period of time, may get boosted, it'll help for a few more weeks, but th- the vaccines have, have really not lived up to that really, really big hope of preventing transmission. They have, if you look at the data on preventing severe illness, um, they've, they've actually done, done pretty well there. Yep. Um, but that's, that's, that's a whole different thing. So to come back to your question, yeah, we probably put too much stock in the vaccines being the cure for everything. And it's, it's, it's fascinating for me to watch now, you know, with Ontario having lifted mask mandates, right? There's a lot of outcry, a lot of pressure from, you know, sort of media and what I'd call the Twitter doctors yeah. um, for masks. And all of a sudden it's like, well, like masks are now seen as like more important than vaccines almost. And, you know, we, even if you're vaccinated, you just can't do without a mask. And I've, I've found that fascinating because mm. two years ago, the start of this, Masks were like, well, you know, Dr. Fauci, Dr. Tam were like, don't wear a mask or maybe wear it if you're sick. Masks could make things worse, you know, because you're, you're touching your face and so on. And we have gone from that to masks just being the the, the silver bullet. What, and, what is the what are the numbers of masks? Because I honestly don't know, because now it's like, do you wear it to protect yourself? Is that what it is now? Yeah, well, that's, I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I honestly don't know anymore if there ever was one. <laughs> well, that's, that, I mean, this is another thing I find interesting is the whole do it for everyone else, right? So so this is initially the back vaccination messaging too, right? Do it for mm. the people around you, do yeah, it for yeah. the community. A lot of people on social media, I got vaccinated to protect everybody around me. And I mean, we're, we're all attracted to that kind of that kind of messaging, right? Like I did this self selfless, noble thing, yeah. as opposed to like, I got vaccinated because I, I don't want to end up in ICU or the cemetery, right? That sounds pretty selfish. I protect me. Even though yeah. it's, even though it's you know, it's, I, I don't think that's a terrible thing to, to do. We, you know, we, we try to be it's, healthy. For, it's fair, but no social media brownie it's, points. It's not, yeah, it, it doesn't, it doesn't feel as like saving the world. So, yeah. and I think that's one of the reasons we had trouble letting go of the idea that vaccines would, would really prevent transmission. Because we're like, well, if they don't prevent transmission, and I'm pr- you mean I'm just protecting me and not everybody else and they need to get their own? Right. So, so, and I, I think the same thing has kind of happened with masks. So initially it was, you know, you're going to wear a mask to protect those around you. And, you know, it's not so much about protecting yourself. And there's, there's, there's a little bit to that. And that's because early on, we thought that COVID spread largely through droplets, right? So larger, larger chunks of goober for, for lack of a better word, the scientific that, term. that would travel moist speaking, <laughs> moist speaking as the prime minister would say that would yeah. travel, you know, five or six feet. Right. So if we're talking now and maybe across the table, you know, going to be across the table. So if you distance by six feet, you wear, you wear a mask that will stop my spray from, from flying. And so, so there's actually some logic to that, right? So me wearing a mask maybe will protect you. There wasn't a ton of science to that, to be honest, but 
but there was, you know, there was common sense. Well, we saw that. We saw the spray model. Oh yeah, that. I mean, you, you yeah, get yeah, the, you yeah. get all these kind of with the, the model of the guy shooting a spit over. <laughs> absolutely, there's that, and then there's like the memes of like people pee in their pants, and you know, if, if I'm wearing pants, you're wearing pants. You know, we won't pee on each other, and there's all kinds of stuff that. But but, but <laughs> so, that so, so no, that that was that was really <laughs> deep. What about what if the puddle becomes more than six feet? <laughs> yeah, well, I guess I guess you gotta you, you, you gotta, gotta a big bladder. Yeah, you gotta too. move, but 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 you know, so, some of these. Some of these, you know, so you would have lab studies, right? Yeah, yeah. Lab study, you can say a mask stops, you know, transmission over a certain distance. Problem is, real life often is quite different than than the lab. We found this, you know, initially lab studies showed that COVID could live on a surface for you know days and days and days, right? So mm. started bleaching our groceries and oh, and, yeah. and doorknobs, and we've never, you know, haven't stopped a lot of that. They're still washing doorknobs like crazy, even though there's there's almost no known cases of what you know fomite transmission from a, a contaminated surface. It's just it's just not there, but yeah. um, hmm. but 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 we we've had trouble letting go of that. So so when it comes comes to masks, you know, I mean, I think right now a you know if you're wearing an N95 mask properly, it actually it actually provides you with with pretty good protection. And if I were somebody who was particularly vulnerable to COVID, I would I would probably protect yourself. Be thinking of that to protect myself. Okay. Um, do I think that's going to protect you know uh, other people around me? Uh, you know, I'm I'm not sure. Um, I guess if I have COVID, it does, but if I have COVID, maybe I shouldn't be out and about, um, anyway. So mm -hmm. th the problem with mask mandates in general is that you're not having everybody wearing properly fitted N95s. You're having kids wearing their SpongeBob mask and yeah, it's, yeah. you know, it's hasn't been washed for a few days <laughs> and it's not and cloth masks. Um, you know, uh, they've like been the compared to compared to like a, having a screen door on a submarine. I mean, you know, they don't. We saw your grandma knitting some that were like, <laughs> dude, you can put your fingers through that. Yeah, thing. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, I think, right. So, so mask mandates, you know, I, I don't think mask mandates are effective at all. And that's not because a good mask won't stop, you know, transmission of the virus. It's because you're not going to be able to mandate everybody in the population to properly wear a, a good mask and the stuff that you've got kids wearing in schools and stuff and taking it off to eat and whatever else. I mean, it's just, yeah. it's just not worth it. And you look right now at Quebec, which has mask mandates, right. Yeah. And is, which has, has much, much higher case numbers, hospitalization numbers than Ontario. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of examples. Yeah. So, um, but like, so, so like the everyday blue masks, are those surgical masks? Is that what they call them? Yeah. So if, if you get a medical grade mask, I mean, it depends where, where, where you get them, right. And in, in theory, they should have multiple layers and, yeah. and so on. The problem is you've got you've got to fit it really well, right? So if, if you think about think about the size of the virus as being really like cigarette smoke, right? So yeah. so size wise, cigarette smoke particles are a pretty good comparison, okay? Right. So so think about okay, if I were smoking, right, and you're wearing masks, what's it going to take for you to not inhale my smoke, right? I mean that, that's lot. that's a good thing. So if you're wearing <laughs> if you're in a blue mask and you've got you know spaces around the side, I mean yeah, maybe you're going to slow down the smoke. Maybe you're going to inhale a little bit less, which which might be beneficial, um, but it's 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 not likely to stop. And the longer we sit in the room together, but that's the, yeah. the, the, so so if we we're if we we're together in a room for a minute, that might actually that might actually help you a little bit, mm. right? If we're ten minutes, you know, probably not. In that context, you could put a, a good N95 you know respirator mask on, properly sealed, and you could probably be there in, indefinitely. But mm. most people aren't aren't wearing those, and they're expensive and. I mean, I'd love to see the government provide those to vulnerable people rather than, again, just trying to tell everybody to wear their, sure. their SpongeBob yeah. cloth mask or, or, or yeah, whatever yeah, else. Yeah. Have. And people are touching them and wearing them with a beard. So, yeah, I mean, it's just, <laughs> you know, your beard's really helping the seal on that thing. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. Huh. Wow, we're flying through the time here. But, okay, I want to get to Texas and Florida because Sam referenced that a lot. Mm -hmm. I think 
it's more complicated than what he made it out to be. But uh, let me just get to what he his point was on that. Um, yeah, he agreed. Basically, okay, so the criticism was uh, Sam and Will defended lockdowns based on Texas and Florida mortality numbers, uh, four times Ontario. Um, is this a fair comparison or are there more factors involved? And then Sam said, uh, for sure, there's always other factors in every comparison, but these are the most commonly referenced by those who oppose the measures taken by the Ontario government. All right, is it a fair so comparison? That, mean, that means policy-wise, right? Like that we did lockdowns, they did not lockdowns. Yeah, and then we looked at the they took very very different approaches. They yeah. got four times more people who died than us. So therefore, <laughs> they got, Ontario they was got right. four times more. <laughs> yeah. So so I mean, comparing any any other jurisdiction is is complicated now. And I know both sides use Texas and Florida. So one side mm-hmm. will say, look, they had no restrictions. And their cases went up and down in in a similar pattern to others, and and I think that's that's fair. And I actually yeah. think it's a really important point yeah. because um, I've often com- compared Ontario to Michigan, and because um, Ontario would impose restrictions, and this this is sort of the pattern that happens. Um, COVID generally the, the waves have gone up fairly sharply, and then they've gone down in most places. And with more mm. transmissible um, variants, they go up and down faster. They go up really really fast, come down really really fast. And what tends to happen then is as they're going up fast, our policymakers go, whoa, this is getting really bad. We're under a lot of pressure. We need to do something. So we do lockdowns, we do masks, or, or we do whatever. And then shortly thereafter, the cases peak and drop. And inevitably, the government, because this is, you know, politicians want to get reelected, they say, see, look what we did. Um, we imposed yeah. measures and bam, it turned around. And then they relax the measures when we get to the bottom of the trough. And then a little while later, another wave starts, and then they get blamed for having reduced the measures too soon. It's helpful to look at other jurisdictions and say, well, when they didn't do anything, cases still went up and down in a very similar pattern to ours. In fact, I've sometimes mapped Michigan's over Ontario's, and even with you know very, very different restriction situations, it's amazing. Sometimes even to the day how, how they go up and down because the virus has its has its own cycle. Well, it's actually a helpful jurisdiction too, yeah. because it's so this sure. climate similar and population-wise similar density, even. Yeah, yeah. So similar population, maybe some similar demographics, some similar climate. So I think that's a factor mm. as well. So, so it, it is helpful, I think, to look at other jurisdictions and say, you know, look, you know, sometimes the lockdowns are not driving or, or lack of lockdowns are not driving it. Um, that's one hand. Now, the other hand, the other side will point to them and say, well, they have a much, much higher death rate. Therefore, our lockdowns work. And I don't think that that actually is something that's backed up by the evidence. Yes, they have a much higher death rate, but every U.S. state has a higher death rate than, than Ontario. All right. And that includes states that heavily locked down. So California and New York, which had lockdowns similar or, or even greater than Ontario. I mean, New York requires masks on toddlers still, um, you know, to this, you know, right now. So and yet they have a higher death rate. So so why is that if lockdowns are reducing the death rate? You can compare Texas and California. So California with a lot of lockdowns, Texas without their death rates pretty similar. Hmm. So I don't think you can make the argument that, you know, those death rates themselves uh, prove that our lockdowns work. There's so many mm-hmm. different variables, right? There's the population health, there's access to healthcare, uh, you know, there's 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 you know human behavior. There's there's the age of the population, right? Florida, mm-hmm. for example, having having a, a more elderly population. So there's all kinds of things going on there. But it gets really interesting if you stop comparing to the U.S., which has generally had a rough time with COVID. Mm-hmm. You start making other comparisons. So why does Ontario have a much higher death rate than BC? All right. I mean, that's that's interesting. Mm. Why does the NDP government in BC have a um, have a have a lower death rate than the the PC government? It's uh, in in Ontario. Is it that they were locked down harder? I don't think so. In fact, I don't think their schools were closed as long as as Ontario's were. But mm. then Quebec 
has double the death rate of Ontario. And I'm talking per capita. So yeah, so yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, so, so why does Quebec they have curfews? They had a they had a curfew. Yeah. They did everything <clears throat> they could. So so this idea that the lockdowns kind of directly influence the death rate, I, I think is a bit of a stretch. Yeah. They could compare internationally, right? So compare Canadian uh, death rate per capita. Right. Why are we higher than we're a little higher than Denmark? We're way higher than like, uh, you know, Finland and Norway. I use those countries because I think there may be some similarities in terms of the healthcare system and mm-hmm. yeah. population and so on. Right. We're way, way higher. So I think you got to be really careful in saying, hey, our lockdowns prevented this this many COVID deaths. I don't I don't think that's necessarily yeah. clear. And that's without getting into the issue of, well, how much collateral damage was there? Mm. Yeah. Sam also pointed to the. Uh, what was it, the increase or the decrease in life expectancy? I think that number. And he said that ours, I think is we went the same. back a half year or something. And very in similar. Florida, something went down a year and a half or something like that. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, yeah, but that's just going to be reflective of the overall mortality numbers, too, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's, and that's, and that's really, I think, what we should be looking at is looking at excess mortality, right? So, yeah, excess so, mortality. Yeah. <laughs> I've often talked about something I call COVID exceptionalism, which is COVID is so exceptional. We don't want you to die of COVID. Like you can die of anything else, yeah. you know, just, just don't, don't die of COVID. So, you know, if we're going to, we're going to take this measure and we're going to, we're going to stop a hundred COVID deaths. So, you know, we are going to, we're going to add 50 overdose deaths and we're going to have 200 more cancer deaths, but at least we stop these COVID deaths. And I'm being a little bit tongue in cheek, but sometimes that's actually been this obsession with, we must stop COVID at, at any cost. And some of those costs have been really high. So mm-hmm. I think when we compare to other jurisdictions, yeah, we need to compare overall excess mortality. How many people die beyond what would have been expected based on, on previous years? And did the lives that we saved from COVID, if we saved lives from COVID, were those you know outnumbered? I mean, we've had some just, just incredible overdose numbers, I think, especially BC, but, but all provinces, right? I mean, let's, let's, let's start adding up the, you know, the, the other impacts. We don't know the impact now of, you know, delayed cancer screening and diagnosis and, and treatment and so on. And some of that's unavoidable. I mean, your hospitals are absolutely full of, yeah. of COVID patients. I mean, there's, there's not a lot you can do about it, but mm-hmm. some of it has been, you know, hospitals that weren't treating a lot of COVID patients, which were still told, you know, stop doing other procedures and, and so on. So I think if, if we're going to talk about the death rate, I mean, consider all the factors, but also consider the, the overall impact. You know, I mean, Lost education to kids actually affects their life expectancy that's, as well. Yeah, that's right? so, true. so that's the World Health Organization has, has been really concerned about you know around the world interrupted education to kids. That actually affects has long term effects, and we don't see that. Yeah, you don't see that in this month's death rates or the other metrics that are often in the newspaper and social media. You know, these are these are things that I think need to be balanced out mm-hmm. as, as part of the policy. As well. But you see, you didn't see that like week to week or day to day, week to week, month to month. But now that it's been a year, you're starting to see some of those impacts, like you're hearing anecdotal evidence from families or or parents who are saying that their grade one kid can't read the same as their other grade one kid could. And, and it's starting, you're starting to see that like, yeah, university kids are struggling more because they have to be online or so like, yeah, I guess it's just those things that hadn't been apparent, like, and it's impossible to, to even model or, or gauge, but, but now you're seeing that like longer term stuff start playing out, but. Yeah, well, I mean, if you think, you know, if, uh, for a kid who's four or five, you know, how much of their life has been pandemic, right? Like that's well, a really have. large proportion yeah. of their life. And, you know, my I think son so- was born like at the beginning and it was like, <laughs> so yeah, he has a life. <laughs> like he, he doesn't know, like, and he's only, what, what is he, a year and a half? He doesn't know that. Yeah, he's a year and a half. He Your child, yeah. He doesn't know that when you go to a grocery store, other people have faces. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which is like, it's crazy. 
And I have my three-year-old telling my wife that she's got to put a mask on now, like now, even that the mandate's over, yeah. right? Like they, they, that's just normal. That's the reality. It was yeah. like, and so that we don't know what the impact of that has. So it's, yeah. Oh, man. Something There's, that we're nice and scared of. Yeah. <laughs> so many things to get to there. Uh, uh, yeah. Um, hmm. Okay. I'll just throw it out to you in general. Like any other topics you want to make sure you hit while you're here. Well, I mean, I, I think vaccine passports to me is yes, that's that's a big an issue I f- I'm very passionate about from a, mm. both from a justice perspective and yeah. from a, from a public policy perspective, you know, yeah. I think those are, uh, and, and I'm not convinced they're gone. I mean, obviously federally they still exist for, for travel, yeah. but I don't think, you know, I was interested because I think, I think, um, it was Sam's comment suggested that they know they, uh, I don't want to misquote, they knew they made a mistake or, or whatever else. I, I was curious about that because I, you know, I haven't heard the government say, hey, vaccine passports were a, were a bad idea. I mean, no, I know Doug Ford said, you know, I'm not going to keep them one day more than necessary. But yeah. um, Trudeau said the same thing. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's turning out to be pretty long time federally. Yeah. And, and provincially, I mean, I'm, con- I'm concerned that they'll be back, even though I don't think there's evidence that they work. And even though I think they do a lot of harm. That's the tough. Yeah. I mean, that's such a tough thing. Even even nationally, <clears throat> like yeah. interprovincial restrictions. It just makes no sense. Yeah. Um, something we're still going to battle but you think we're going to battle that more in the rest of our life like you know going on vacation down south and at this point if if you decided you're unvaccinated and you wanted to go to florida it would take you like seven months to get all the the paperwork together that you need to get there (laughs) because you need to get vaccinated and wait and then another booster and then wait and then you have to i think it's like two or three months you got to wait before you after that you can still board a plane like yeah, it's 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 hard. You it's know, it's hard to say where all that's going to go. I mean, I think Canada is a bit out of step with other countries in terms of what we're requiring for for travel. Um, but you know, what, one of the concerns I have with with passports, and it's true with lockdowns and masks and so on, is <clears throat> at a certain point we just start assuming that they work, right? Mm, so we, yeah. we don't we don't have a real good review of did they work. So if we would we would review Ontario's passports, <clears throat> for example, right? They're they're imposed for three reasons, right? One was to stop outbreaks in transmission. Uh, one was to prevent lockdowns. One was to increase vaccination rates. So do we have mm. a good review that this actually happened? Well, I mean, we, we know that they didn't stop transmission. We have data on that. Uh, you know, we know they didn't stop outbreaks. You know, the places that um, required passports, so gyms, restaurants, and so on, uh, you know, by this past December, their outbreaks were higher than they ever had been. So it wasn't stopping mm. outbreaks there. Clearly didn't stop lockdowns because we locked down again and, and, yeah. and closed school again. And whether they increase vaccination rates, and it's pretty hard to tell, there's an initial short-term bump, uh, you know, where people, you know, booked it, but, um, or booked their vaccine appointments, but there, there hasn't been a huge change to, to the rates either. And our rates were, were very good before the passports and, you know, they're, they're even better now, mm-hmm. but there are lots of other programs that were increasing vaccination rates. So I just, I think it's really important from a public policy point of view is we take a look and say, did this work? But we seem to skip that stage with with some of these policies and we just move from let's try this to now this is part of our toolbox and we'll pull it out again when when we need it. And that's that's mm-hmm. really alarming because I think, um, you know, we could just end up repeating mistakes because at a certain point we just assume that they work. So what do we do as as just lay people, I guess, to encourage our leaders not to do that? Because you see, like if, if, if the Ford government gets in again, we're in for another three, four years of this, this <clears throat> same thing. And if if they use the precedents that they've, they've had over the last two years. Like we could see this for a common cold. I see even Dr. Moore said in, in his speech today or yesterday, um, he was, he mentioned the flu in the same sentence as COVID right. in the fall. 
Well, it's like, so now did we move the bar on this whole thing? And then are we going to start using measures for like this public policy measures for, you know, just things that we weren't concerned about two years ago? Like, do we have an exit strategy out of this right now? Yeah. And, and I mean, I, I think the provincial government would say, yes, we, we do. I mean, you know, you, you talked earlier about, you know, where we're using early treatments often, you know, enough and, and we, we weren't, but we're starting to get there now. Right. Um, so, so we have, I think we have some parts of a strategy, but I'm afraid that the strategy is also, well, we'll simply reapply the same measures once, once this gets bad again, this, this will happen again in the fall, the cases yeah, yeah. are going to go up for sure. And, um, you know, even with high vaccination numbers, we know that doesn't stop cases from rising. People end up in hospital. And I'm afraid it's just going to be this this sort of this reflex where we, we just do the same things we're doing without without actually assessing whether it works. Because it just becomes almost it's like common knowledge. Like I'll hear this from lots of people. It's just common sense that masks work, that vaccine passports work, that lockdowns work and, and so on. Well, I don't think it's common sense. And I think it should be based on, on evidence. Mm-hmm. One of the challenges is become very political, right? So if you're on this part of the political spectrum, you believe in whatever these restrictions. If you're, you know, this part you don't believe in in these restrictions. Instead of being evidence based, and so in terms of your question, what can we do? I think we have to keep calling for evidence and data, and and keep pointing to that, and keep raising that with people like Will and Sam, who I, yeah. I think they're they're reasonable and they they want to do the right thing, and and they're they're willing to listen, uh, and and just keep saying, hey, you know, this doesn't have to be a political issue. Yeah. This is this is an issue of policy and an issue of health and an issue of justice. And how are we? How are we sure that these things work? And and what mm-hmm. might work better? I mean, you know, there, there are there are ways. I've I've proposed you know lots of different ways that we can move forward without having to choose between. On the one hand, let's do nothing and just let it be. On the other hand, let's be super restrictive. I mean, there are ways in between that we can that we can use mm-hmm. that can be minimally disruptive to society, yeah. but can still protect people who need to be protected. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah, I mean, let's hope we see that message pounded over the next six months. That People like you got to they've spent the last few years using the blunt tools that they have used to pound it into the population that everybody should be scared of this. And now they have six months to kind of change that messaging around. So when the fall comes around and we get this inevitable spike, hopefully there's not as much pressure to, to use those tools. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see like once <clears throat> once the governments are reelected. What is it? It's June, right? Yeah, June. Once June we, get in a, yeah, we get another provincial government how well they get along with the federal government too, because right now it's like they're in each other's pocket and they're just going along with whatever they say. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see if that uh, changes before it gets in again. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's definitely more to talk about. There was still more feedback. I know we wanted to focus more on the stats. That's Ed's Mm -hmm. uh, area of expertise. Mm -hmm. I mean, we did mention a bit early on, but just about some of the arrogance that uh, was just presupposed in, in some of these policy decisions. And that like you can claim credit for saving lives or that they have responsibility for the lives that are lost. Um, some people wrote in saying basically that um, to do that for a virus that was inevitably going to make its way through a population seems like the government trying to play God. And then kind of a related point to that, another one, uh, Sam's case about preserving life, uh, quote, as much as we can in Lord's Day 40 uh, was off the mark. We don't deserve only, quote, good outcomes. We should be able to say that honestly, as with Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We deserve whatever God brings us and no better. Uh, that disobedient government overreach and abuse of power may have saved lives does not justify it. Whether or not uh, they have such authority from God to do what they did is another topic which can be discussed elsewhere. But the end itself, the preservation of life, should not be taken for granted as the single justifying factor. 
Uh, we have to be careful. We do not make life to be an idol. And then just to get to Sam's response to that, um, he agrees life should not be an idol. Uh, but what makes it disobedient for the government to seek uh, to protect life in a situation in a once-in-a-century pandemic? Uh, where is the line between thoughtful preventative measures, uh, which prevent us from harming ourselves or our neighbor, and disobedient action? And that's kind of that's been the key point throughout all this. Um, that line seems to differ for different people. Uh, the argument about whether or not the government has the authority to do so, in fact, is a discussion for a different time, but completely integral to the government's action. If a government has authority to do so, that is very important to the conversation. So again, this kind of touches on going forward, right? Like where is that balance going to lie and how can the government chart a path that is uh, minimally intrusive yet still protects vulnerable populations? Um, yeah. Do, do you agree that they've kind of had a bit of arrogance in, in how they've approached this in terms of seeking to do more than they actually can do? Well, I, I think there's been arrogance in the sense that thinking that we can you know, that, that everything that's going to happen with a virus is a result of our actions, right? So yeah. we can control it, or we can, we can stop it, we can change it. So, you know, that's, and I think that's not just our government, that's been a human, for sure. that's been a human for sure. approach. I mean, I, you know, I, I like to think of the organization of society in, in terms of, you know, sphere sovereignty and sort of the different roles of, of the different institutions. And, you know, I certainly have no problem saying part of the government's role is that of public health, right? Mm -hmm. and, and dealing with diseases and disasters and, and so on. I mean, that's, I think that's a responsibility of the government, part of the government doing justice and, um, you know, keeping order and, and so on. And obviously, that bumps up into other spheres, right? I mean, bumps up into the church and the family and, and mm -hmm. so on. And there can be a lot of arguments about, you know, was there, did it go too far in, in one direction? Because I think that other parts of society can also have responsibility in those areas, and it should be shared. And it's not necessarily uh, not necessarily all government. Yeah. In terms of preserving life, I mean, I think that's that's a pretty key role of of government. I mean, it, obviously, it shouldn't be the interest in do we preserve life at the cost of anything. Um, my my concern is that we actually focused, as as I mentioned earlier, on preserving life from COVID, mm. and and not you know not looking at the overall impact on on society and you know saving saving a life from COVID and and you know creating two or leading to two deaths from something else. To yeah. me, that that's not actually you know preserving life. I think the other thing was maybe insufficient attention to, you know, preserving life at what cost. So you know, when you talk about elderly people in long-term care facilities who are prevented from visiting with family members, prevented from leaving, you know, in some cases, I mean, there are horror stories of being locked in a room and doorknobs removed and so on. Mm -hmm. Obviously, that's not government policy. But but this, this you know, we are going to, we're going to save your life even if we make it completely miserable, right? And And, you know, I feel that that's, you know, that's something where we maybe could have could have thought about it differently. And, you know, one of the ways would have been to ask, ask some of the people involved actually what, what their priority was. Maybe their priority was, well, I'd actually really, really like to see my grandchildren, even if there's going to be some risk, as yeah. opposed mm -hmm. to you locking me away for a long period of time. I can't yeah. see anybody because because you're saving me. So so I, I think there has to be that discussion, too, about um, and again, it keeps coming back to with any policy, the benefit versus versus mm -hmm. the harm. And I didn't, you know, I didn't see a lot of that when governments talk about, you know, we're, we're imposing this policy um, and, you know, we think here, here's the benefit, but we think here are some of the downsides. It's always been kind of, this is all good. We're going to do this, right? School yeah. closures, right? We're going to do this because it's going to make, uh, it's going to make schools safer, even though they're already safe. Uh, and, you know, there's not much of a downside because kids are resilient and we'd reopen schools because, because well, it's so important that kids be in school. And, you know, it's extremely important to the mental health. And then we close schools like it's no, no big deal. Yeah. Um, 
So, so you know, the, the balancing of, of, of benefit and harm should be a part, it's just that's fundamental part of policymaking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then also just evaluating, has, has the policy worked? Yeah. Have, we, have we achieved what we meant to achieve? And I think those, those have been missing. Yeah. Um, the harm benefit analysis, the, the evaluation of whether it worked. And, you know, the other part from a policy perspective that's been missing has just been uh, how have we defined the problems that we're going to solve? I'm pretty sure that at many points of the pandemic, we weren't even sure what we were trying to prevent anymore. You know, mm-hmm. were, were we preventing the hospitals from being overwhelmed or are we stopping the spread, you know, stopping people from getting infected? You know, yeah. are we trying to reduce daily cases? Are we trying to, you know, protect ICU? Uh, it, it became very, very, mm-hmm. very muddled. So some of, some of that's government overreach. You know, perhaps some of that I think is is human arrogance, thinking we can control everything. Some of it is maybe not having a, a, a clear enough understanding of sort of the boundaries between sort of different spheres and in, institutions. Yeah. And, um, you know, hopefully we've, we've learned from that and can go forward and, and do it better, but I'm, I'm not always convinced. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned sphere sovereignty and reading this makes me think of, well, if this was your, like if, if this was a parent in a child relationship and not the government and, and the public, it, it kind of gives me the feeling that like society has become this like safe space culture. We've, We've got like helicopter parenting and like everyone's looking out for, you know, or that, you know, people are looking out for their, their kids and, and everyone's trying to make everything safe for everybody and not trigger anybody. <laughs> um, but if you, if you think about like helicopter parenting specifically, a, a parent is trying to um, prevent their child from harm. Well, that's easy when they're like in your, like under your umbrella around your house, but it's not obvious that that is uh, helpful for them long-term. So is it really helping? Helping? Well, yeah, maybe immediately because they don't fall off of uh, some, you know, seesaw. Yeah, they don't fall off your retaining wall in the front of your house. But also, like maybe falling off that thing, you know, will help them long term understand what risk is, and then maybe that you know pushes out into more more of life. So having like having the government tell everybody, you know, how to um, stay safe. It's it's also something they can't control because the public's not under their you know, watchful eye 24 seven, right? So, so it's, it just seems like an unhelpful way to, to, you know, push someone who's below you into, into kind of like a submit submission kind of uh, attitude. And then when they come out of that, is that that's not really a helpful or, you know, constructive um, person or, or society anymore. So it just, yeah, it just made me think like you kind of got to look at all the spheres and, and yeah government government should you know probably consider some of these things so yeah and i think you know i mean we've seen friction obviously between sort of state and church right mm-hmm. when these 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 things you know bump up against each other and um but a lot a lot of it comes down to trust again right so if if there is a deep trust in government and public health and the government said you know look i you know really suggest you wear a mask or stay home or whatever else Right. If there's a deep trust relationship, then then maybe there's not a need to even impose a law or a regulation. Mm. People and, and then there'd be further, you know, we're, we're going to give you really clear information on risk. We're not going to try to sort of message it to create a certain you know, behavioral pattern, but we're going to we're going to trust that once we give you this information, it would have been a really yeah. different way to, to function. And maybe maybe this is just a, a really bad um, you know, reflection on where our society is at in terms of trusting institutions and trusting each other and, and willingness to go then. And, and, you know, perhaps we're going to find that societies where there were much deeper levels of, of trust and cooperation, that things could, could, could actually, you know, work much more smoothly mm. without the government saying, you know, locking down playgrounds or, you know, closing schools or, or doing some of these, these yeah. other measures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Well, 
Well, it's been a, a road. Hopefully we put COVID to bed. To bed. I would say I would say <laughs> the takeaway the takeaway is contact your local reps and uh you know ask that they ask them if they have a plan and what their metrics are for getting out of this. Because that's I think that's the way we can change things if there is a possibility of change by the time the fall rolls around, if the politicians change their messaging and this becomes less about everybody's problem and more about yes you have responsibility but just be careful around those who are vulnerable and uh and we can return to to normal life essentially uh I think yeah i think a push for accountability or a push for um some some form of justice in this thing right like an inquiry an ev- yeah an inquiry good. an evaluation of, of whether or not these things were were properly done because without that and i'm not even saying that to like say well we need to hold these people accountable and you know they should be you know held accountable for the deaths or whatever like just so that we know for the future like so we have it on the books right so we have yep you know when when the flu is pretty bad next year we're not running for lockdowns again and and let's shut schools down or like that's not becoming a <laughs> common public policy yeah any closing thoughts ed yeah no i, I I'm, I'm hoping next fall that you know or summer or whenever the next wave hits that that it will be different and i'm i'm hoping we can get to the point where you know, the government is is definitely looking after people who are vulnerable, because I actually think that right now, some people who are vulnerable feel like they've kind of been just just left on their own. And I don't mm-hmm. think that should be the case either. Mm-hmm. Um, and we got to get away from this sort of one size fits all uh, approach and say, you know, OK, for for these people who are particularly at risk, we're, we're actually going to go above and beyond. We're going to we're going to do things that will help keep them safe. At the same time, we'll try to be minimally disruptive to people. And particularly, we're going to admit when people are at low risk, particularly children. We're going to admit that, you know, sometimes our, our cure, you know, our, our, you know, our keeping them safe is actually really unsafe for them is actually, actually doing a lot of harm. So hopefully um, our, our elected representatives and our public health officials and so on, you know, we'll be able to get to that point where say we are going to try really hard to do a better job of protecting the vulnerable. And at the same time, recognizing that um, health is more than the absence of COVID, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's really, really important. Just just removing COVID from the picture doesn't doesn't mean you're healthy. Health is is far broader than that. It's it's mental health, it's physical health, it's spiritual health, it's emotional health, and all of these things should be taken into consideration. And you know, don't put COVID on a pedestal. You know, we can't ignore it. We can't pretend it's not there. Uh, but at the same time, you know, let's let's make sure we understand that human beings are are bigger than just um, you know, do they test positive or not on on a rapid test. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Alrighty. Well, thanks for coming. We yeah, appreciate thanks for your, your time. time. This thanks, is a, for, thanks for having me. Really yeah, appreciate it. It was and wonderful. Hopefully, and we never have to talk about COVID. Yeah, I think <laughs> otherwise, you know, otherwise maybe we'll come back in the fall and uh, yeah, maybe yeah, have yeah, Will yeah. and Sam and me here all together. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. if golf courses close again, you'll be here. <laughs> Ski hills, golf courses, oh, yeah, boat yeah. ramps. You can go out in a boat. Perfect. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Putting COVID to bed with Ed Bosveld. Yeah. yeah, there you go. There's the title. <laughs> Wonderful. All right. Well, thanks, folks, for listening. Yeah, let uh, us know what you think about these new feedback things. We're going to try to, you know, make them more, uh, less us talking and more you know, useful people. So, yeah. <laughs> thanks, Ed. Should be thanks fun. for having me. All right. Keep having real talk. Catch you next time. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Real Talk. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen or watch the show. If you want to send us your feedback, and we'd love to hear it, please email us at reformedrealtalk at gmail.com. If you want to find us online or social media, we've got a lot of great content there. 
Just search Reformed Real Talk and we should come right up. This show is created and produced by myself, Lucas Holtfleur, and Tyler Vanderwood. And our wonderful podcast manager who does all the editing is Mariah Tamiga. So we're really thankful for her contribution to the show as well. That's all for now, folks. Thanks for watching or listening, and we'll catch you next time. Bye-bye.